Welcome to the Wild and Free Podcast, Episode 56. I'm Ainsley Arment, and this week, Erin Lochner, the author of Chasing Slow, talks about how her principles for intentional living can apply to our homeschools. You know, we see like our friends with their like miniature backpacks and lunchboxes, like sending their children off to, you know, a building. And we think that counts because that looks like action, right? That looks like a fit, like a product, like you were doing something intentional, but there's just as much intentional things happening inside your own house that you just don't realize. Plus, we just added two new events at the Wild and Free Farm Village. So grab a cup of coffee and join us on the front porch. Let's get started. After my father's army career, he became a business consultant to CEOs, Fortune 500 companies, and the military, specializing in the application of the Myers-Briggs Type Indicator, the MBTI. Not only did I grow up knowing the nuances of my personality type, but I was also celebrated for the strengths of my wiring. So it was only natural that when I brought my then-fiancé, Ben, home to meet my dad one weekend, he sat him down at the kitchen table and gave him the test. It must have turned out well because he raised no objections at the wedding. But I never knew how powerful personality types could be until we had to navigate the differences in our personalities in those first few years of marriage. For example, I'm a perceiver and Ben is a judger, so he lives by a to-do list, a calendar, and a scheduling app on top of it. I prefer to go with the flow, respond to life as it comes, and wait as long as I can to make decisions in the likelihood that new information might come along. Ben makes lists and uses them. I make lists and lose them. Early on, our evenings out sounded something like this. Where would you like to go to dinner? Ben would ask. Oh, I don't know. How about Outback Steakhouse? Great. I love Outback, Ben would respond. Let's go. Or we could go to that New Mexican place, I'd say, and try their guacamole. Ben would swallow something invisible and nod his head. Okay, perfect. The New Mexican place it is. Great. I'll get my coat, I'd say, and then turn around. You know, I'm craving pad thai. And then Ben's head would explode. We finally figured out some tactics that would serve us well throughout our marriage. For example, I tell him what I definitely don't want for dinner and then let him make the call. We still have some bumps along the way, but we're doing better. Introduce five children, all homeschooled, all distinct in their personality types, and all combustible with the tensions that rise and fall in the course of a day with seven people. Homeschooling families are basically reality shows without the cameras. Some of my kids prefer consistency in their days, and others need a frequent change in pace. Some need time alone to recharge their batteries. Others need hearty discourse to feel their best. Some need instructions explained step by step, while others need the big picture to understand. We can't possibly thrive at homeschooling without understanding how our children are wired. In traditional schools, they are all taught in the same way. But we get to understand how our children are wired and then adapt their education to their personalities. We get to value who they are and meet them where they're at. So observe them, study them, watch how they express themselves, and take note. Go Jane Goodall on your children. Our conversation with Erin Lochner is coming up in just a minute. 
But first, our annual family camp in Buena Vista, Colorado is officially full. But have no fear. We just announced two more events coming up this summer at the Wild and Free Farm Village. We believe community is best expressed in real life, so we're constantly dreaming and planning ways to bring us all together. And I'm so excited to share these events with you. The first one is a spring mama retreat on May 22nd through 24th. Join us for a gathering of women who are looking to refresh their souls, spend time in nature, make new friends, and reignite their passion for homeschooling. The second event is the Midsummer Family Festival happening on June 26th through 28th. I'm especially excited about this one, you guys. So many of you have been asking for ways that you can get your family to the farm village, and this is it. Come with your whole family for a camping experience with fun-filled activities, live music, and wilderness adventure. You can sign up for either of these events or learn more at bewildandfree.org upcoming. Erin Lochner is a beloved author and former HGTV host. In 2017, she wrote Chasing Slow, Courage to Journey Off the Beaten Path, a book about slowing down, stripping the excess, making great strides and falling down, then getting up and starting again. It's about less stuff and more grace. I had the chance to meet and get to know Erin at the Wild and Free Conference in Franklin, Tennessee last fall and fell in love with her servant-hearted nature and grace-filled strength. Erin began her homeschooling journey a few years ago, and I'm thrilled that Jennifer Pepito had a chance to chat with her about how her passion for intentional living has helped her ditch the more is better mindset and embrace her children's individual needs. Let's join Jen and Erin for their conversation now. Thank you for joining me today, Erin. Oh my gosh, Jennifer, I'm so excited to talk to you. This is going to be fun. Yeah, I adore you. I've gotten to meet you in person and had lots of Voxer conversations with you. And I feel like I was especially excited to talk to you about this because I feel like your journey toward intentional living has really helped you in your newer journey as a homeschool mom, because you sort of already have gotten a lot of the self-doubt out of the way. Oh, that's a really interesting perspective. Thank you, first of all, for saying that. I would not say I'm a confident person, but I will say I am confident in sort of breaking the rules. And you're right. I think intentional living does teach you that, that there isn't just one way of living, nor is there one way of homeschooling. Yeah. And I think that that can be what really plagues new homeschool moms, especially is the comparison. You know, we, we see one person doing Waldorf. So we try to add that in, or we see someone doing something Charlotte Mason. So we try to add more of that. And pretty soon we're just a mess. Like we have too much on our plate because we've tried to fit into everybody's mold instead of just finding our own way. Oh my gosh. Yes. And I will say I did not, I was totally probably the worst offender of that. I remember like as when my daughter turned three and I knew homeschooling was right for us, right? Like we made the decision pretty early on, even though my parents were both public school teachers. So they obviously had some feelings about us. But anyway, I remember asking every single person at homeschool, like, okay, well, what do we do? What do we do? And they would be like, just keep doing what you're doing. And I'd say, you don't even know what I'm doing. I could be just like sitting on the couch all day, right? Like that sounds like terrible advice, but it's actually fantastic advice because I truly believe that when we're sort of faced with that self-doubt, we kind of, we start 
heading down that path of like more, 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 which is exactly the same as intentional living. I think we just kind of stuff ourselves with what we think are the right answers, but, but it's such an odd way to put it because here's the thing. Like we know that kind of classifying education by subject is sort of silly because who's to say the civil war is not a study in language and literature as much as it, as it is in history. And we, we kind of know that to be true, but then we do it with our method. We think we have to classify our method. We have to have a specific curriculum that falls under one category, like only Waldorf or only classical. And we sort of try on all these different hats. But man, in the beginning, that was probably the greatest struggle was feeling like I had to have a curriculum. And now that I'm sort of a little bit through, my daughter's only seven, so I'm by no means an expert at this, but I do see the value in kind of not having the children be a product of the education, but maybe the education being a product of the child. Oh, I love that. And it's interesting that you said that advice their friend gave you about just keep doing what you're doing, because I know initially that can seem really scary, but if, you know, a person who is fully alive is actually probably not a person who's vegging out on the TV all day. A person who's fully alive is probably a person who is learning something or reading about something and trying it out or looking up a recipe and trying it out or planting a garden or trying on clothes or, you know, organizing their cupboards, whatever it is. Most of us, if we are, have settled down some of the inner questions, we're doing something, we're excited about something. And when we start bringing our children into that excitement, then they will get an education. Yes. And we forget to count that. We forget that that counts what we're already doing. And, and I get why, you know, we see like our friends with their like miniature backpacks and lunchboxes, like sending their children off to, you know, a building. And we think that counts because that looks like action, right? That looks like a fit, like a product, like you were doing something intentional, but there's just as much intentional things happening inside your own house that you just don't realize. Right. And here's a question though. Your parents, you mentioned are both public school teachers and I've seen how the public school system has, I would say, digressed, honestly, from kindergarten being a place where you can cut and paste and be really creative and listen to stories to the this higher levels of pressure every year on children to learn academics early. How have your parents handled you taking a little bit of a different approach? You know what's so funny? They went through the whole trajectory that I did where it's like, oh, I must be crazy. But then you kind of sort of slowly over time see the fruits, not only the fruits of what you're doing in your own home, but sort of the decisions and choices that your friends who are going a different route have to make. And they're totally different sets of choices, right? None is right, none is wrong. It's just sort of what you're willing to compromise. And I think once my parents started to sort of witness from afar the fruits in our kids, you know, the the kinds of questions that they would ask and sort of that childhood wonder and discovery and love for learning kind of, it never left. Whereas with some of our other kids their age, it was stifled. And my parents, you know, they were not by any means public school purists. I think they could see and witness from where they were sitting that it was very hard to keep kindling that spark for education within the walls. Not that it can't be done. It can totally be done. But I think they saw with the administration, with all the changes that everything was going on, it was stifling to a child on a lot of levels. Or it was simply, you know, if you're a kid that likes to follow rules, then you're sort of like 
all right, cool, that kid's under control. Let's just let them keep doing what they're doing. And there's not really advancement beyond. I think what I'm saying is they came around after they saw the fruits, which is exactly what happened with me. Yeah. And it's interesting that you talked about how, you know, one child or one type of child ends up being the star student in a more institutional school setting. But there's not a place to honor the many different kinds of kids there are. You know, I think that that's a big question in our minds that can help us develop confidence too, is what is my child's learning style? Because, you know, if we're trying to do classical education, because that's what we like, and yet we have a child who's more of an artist, and they really get bogged down with a lot of memorization, you know, we maybe have to change course. How have you kind of try to develop an awareness of your child's learning style? Oh, that is such a good question. And isn't that like the lifelong question? Because here's here's the other thing I believe. I think we can honor our child's learning style and our own by letting it change and by letting it sort of evolve. I remember when my daughter was three, I wanted to teach her how to read and she was fully ready. She had a billion questions. And I taught her the way that I thought I should, which was, you know, that big, huge book, How to Teach a Child to Read in 100 Lessons or whatever? Yes, I tried that. I tried that one. Same, same. <laughs> You know what? It's a fantastic book, but it was not, it was so overwhelming actually to both of us. You know, I remember we'd have to kind of like brace ourselves. Our shoulders would be all like stiff. You have to brace ourselves before going into it. We got maybe halfway through, you know, because I was still not at the point where I could, you know, walking that fine line between pushing, but not pushing sort I of. I get it. Yes. So I, I felt like, well, I don't want to be like lax about this. And this was also our first foray into what I thought homeschooling was. <laughs> I didn't realize I've been doing it all my life, but this felt like the stakes were high. Right. So I remember like, I'm just going to keep reintroducing it. We're going to just power through. It's going to be great. And, um, we got about halfway through and I thought, sure, it's working. Yeah, it's totally working. She's learning, but I'm not into this anymore. And I don't think she is either. And so we switched to bot books so she could like hold them in her hands. And that was so empowering to her as an independent person. And it felt like it was such an illustration of what I learned homeschooling needed to be. It wasn't, it, it wasn't even about what I thought I should be teaching my child, but it was what she was ripe for learning and teaching her to be a lifelong learner and teaching her that she is responsible for her education. And that there's a beauty in that. And so I remember once I sort of let that evolution happen, she loved how to read a book in a hundred lessons or whatever, how to teach her child to read a hundred. She liked it again because it was sort of like she had taste of what the free way was. And now she wanted a little more structure. So I think, I think kind of letting that learning style change and not assuming that it spans all categories either. There are certain things. I mean, the girl loves a good worksheet. I can't handle them. But she also, at the same time, loves free exploration, don't tell me how to do an art project sort of thing. And that's okay too. So I sort of bristle against the idea that our kids have a learning style. And I think instead, if we're just open to witnessing their education and kind of just sort of being a mirror for that education, I think that that's um, a really flexible, empowering way to teach. That's really good. And it's interesting because that was one of the things that Susan Wise Bauer said she wished she, she had done more of when she spoke at the Wild and Free Conference in Frisco. She said that she wished she just had taken more time to observe her child and understand what it is that that child needed. Because like you say, some child might be good at free art and they might also be good at worksheets or they might also enjoy something that's more structured. And so saying, okay, we're a Waldorf family and this is exactly how we're going to do things without any flexibility might not be best for your child. Right. And it's not even an accurate description because the, the other thing is, I think when we classify all these methods, it's really hard to come away from a lesson, even 
knowing, well, was that Charlotte Mason or was that Waldorf or was it? Because it's it's actually a little bit of both. I remember we once were trying to rehabilitate a dying mouse <laughs> that landed in our yard. And we went through, um, you know, going to the library, finding all these books on mice and I knew nothing. And we're just Googling and searching and what do they eat and how, like what, what could all the possible symptoms be? And it was like a whole afternoon of exploration and it was awesome and wonderful. And I think had I been still in the mindset of the one path education, or maybe just the one method, or is this even asking myself, is this method aligned with my family values? Even asking yourself great questions like that. Had I still sort of wanted to box it in, I think I would would have been so worried that the lesson was aligned with that philosophy that I would have missed what we were even learning, right? I, I think I would have been so wrapped up in does this count for Charlotte Mason because we're outdoors and exploring nature? Does it count for Montessori and that she's doing the independent learning or does it count for Waldorf and that we're hoping of all hope that the mouse will magically rehabilitate, right? Like I think I would have been asking myself all those questions and not the most important thing, which is, is my child learning something today? Yeah. And even, you know, I love what you're saying there because even just enjoying your child, you know, we are so wrapped up in trying to get homeschooling right, instead of just enjoying the journey, we also take a lot of enjoyment out of our early childhood years, which sadly don't last. Right. And it's art. It's our experience too, right? Like I don't, I know that childhood is very magical, but I also think being the parent of of an early child is very magical. And I think they go hand in hand and that, you know, one doesn't necessarily exist without the other. Absolutely. And if we are so worried about doing the right thing, we steal some of the magic of that season from ourselves as well. We'll get back to Jen and Aaron in just a moment. There is so much wisdom at 30,000 feet. We can see the whole of the landscape, where the pitfalls are, the dangers. As parents, we spend much of our day trying to get the little ones to see things at our level. Don't touch the stove. Look both ways before crossing the street. Don't misbehave in public. We are the General Douglas MacArthur's of our households, field marshalling the troops into the best strategic formations because we can see the master plan at our altitude. It's a constant beckoning to rise up to our level. But children feel cherished only at their own level. When we sit on the carpet with them, time stands still. When we play their games, We enter into a hidden universe where they feel seen for who they really are. Is it any wonder that most of the great children's stories are set in a world where parents merely peek through cracked bedroom doors at night to make sure all is quiet, but never get to enter the wardrobe? And yet children want nothing more than to enter the secret garden hand in hand with their parents. But sitting on the floor tests our patience. Stopping to play a childhood game raises our blood pressure. We've got things to do, deadlines to meet, dinner to cook, duties to uphold. And then there's the great new modern appendage, the smartphone, rewiring our brains and expanding our obligations to include liking and being liked by people we've never met. The best part about homeschooling is that entering into our children's world is part of the curriculum. It's not stated in any textbook, but it's the natural outflow of this organic lifestyle. One reason I hate replicating the classroom at home is that it requires children to assume the posture of adults. We bend their bodies into the learning position as if they're already working in cubicles. I don't know how your children sit at the dining room table, but mine look nothing like how the chairs are shaped, and telling them otherwise does me no good. Children invite us into their world in small, delicate ways each day. They stand before us, board game in hand, 
looking up into our eyes as if maybe this time might be different. Children are resilient. They ask, get rejected, and then ask again. Imagine being surrounded by giants all day, looking up at the underside of their chins, and then experiencing the sheer delight when one of them crouches down to join our activity. Childhood is so fleeting. Before we know it, they will indeed stand as tall as us and perhaps see things the way we do. But by then, it will be too late. Their childhoods will be gone. May we learn to enter their world before they stop inviting us. You can read this story and others like it in the book, The Call of the Wild and Free. Now back to our conversation with Jen and Aaron. So one of the things I love about you is I think you're kind of an essentialist. Like, I'm pretty sure you've read the book, Essentialism. It's really a practice that we could adopt as homeschoolers because it's so easy to just pile on all the good things and then end up overwhelmed and exhausted. How have you kind of applied essentialism to your life as a homeschooler and a mom? You know, for me, I think it's not a question of what I'm teaching, but how they're learning. And I think it's just that I have the one goal. And the one goal is simply not to stifle whatever she or he, whatever their natural bent is in learning, like whatever that natural curiosity is, I want to sort of exist as a tool for them to follow that. There are certainly so many holes in any education. So I'm less worried about filling in those holes and filling in those gaps. And I'm more worried about teaching her how to eventually and teaching my son how to eventually. And there's no timeline on that. There's no expiration date on learning. So I think once we take the timeline pressure out of it, it becomes that much more freeing. I feel like when the clock is racing, my heart is sort of matching the cadence of that. And so I think for me, the beauty of homeschooling is there really isn't truly a timeline unless we're putting it on ourselves. So releasing that kind of takes everything away. And I I would say, you know, I have sort of my own personal goals for what feels like a productive accomplished day. And that is simply, you know, if we've read together at some point, a book that everybody enjoys, or maybe doesn't everybody enjoy as long as I've read something. Um, It could be the dishwasher manual. I don't care. As long as we've gone outside, again, 20 minutes, maybe I get that it's cold, but just outdoor time. And then if I've like had a one-on-one connection relationally with my child, those are really my only three learning goals for my kids. And they're, they're seven and under. So it, the stakes are still pretty low. But I feel like sort of having those pillars in your mind of what you value and what makes sense to you at this age, everything else is just icing. Yeah, that's really lovely. I think that when we do kind of have some essential daily goals, goals mine would be similar to be, you know, reading aloud, having some free play time outside and doing some hands-on math or in the case of my older students doing math every day and some writing. So, you know, having just some basic goals kind of frees us up to, to not necessarily do every single thing that we've even scheduled because sometimes you just can't and letting go of that idea that the day is a failure. If we didn't check everything off our list is probably a great way to develop more peace in your homeschool. Yes. And I think when we truly pay attention and we notice those small things, even if it's just, you know, your kids listening to music and all of a sudden they've memorized all the lyrics, that's cool. That's a, that's a wonderful gift. And, and it translates and spans multiple abilities and categories and subjects. And so I think if we are just sort of bearing witness to them as people, it becomes very obvious that they are learning quite a lot. Yeah. I love that. 
Okay, but here's the only thing. I think sometimes we think if we're supposed, you know, essentialism and homeschooling can really help us free up more time. But on the other hand, taking the time to observe our child, especially if we have multiple children, can take a lot of time. How do you carve out time for uh, just being a woman or being a businesswoman or, you know, personal goals? So I'm fairly gifted at compartmentalization. It's a, it's a blessing and a curse. And so I tend to just kind of have a work hat and then a non-work hat. And I'm learning to integrate the two a lot better than I have in the past. But right now I work Monday, Wednesdays, and Fridays, and that's all. And usually Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, it's kind of a half day. So my husband and I both work from home and we both freelance. So we are gifted in the flexibility realm. Like we, we both can sort of kind of ebb and flow with what the kids need done in terms of where they need to be at a certain time or any outside ex- activities and things. So I think for me, knowing that that pocket and window of time is there is far easier to sort of kind of just melt into the day with the kids. I do know though, there haven't always been seasons where that's been the case where I've had those kind of earmarked windows of time. And in those days, it's just far easier to remind myself that it's totally okay to say to the kids, I'm going to be out for a second. Like just, I'm, I'm going to check out. I'm going to go over here and read my book. I'm going to go into a different room. I'm going to turn on some music for you guys. Here's a playlist. Here's some watercolors. Here's Sesame Street. I don't care. There are times when you can kind of tag out yourself, even if there's not kind of a partner available or or sort of that earmarked time. Yeah, I get it. In my early years when I had five young children, we were pretty low tech. I kept the TV off almost 100% of the time, except that little witching hour in the afternoon when I'm trying to make dinner and there's a baby crying that was often time that I just had to put on a show for them. That's when I used to save it. Yeah, that time of day. And then I went straight into, with my second child, no TV ever. But it backfired because then when they were sick, it'd be TV all the time. So now my kids will come to me and be like, I think I have a fever. And I'm like, no, you're good. Yeah. Well, I think that a big part of motherhood and homeschooling, honestly, is experimentation. You know, we hope that we're making good decisions at the experiments that we're doing in learning how to be flexible or learning how to observe our child or learning how to be free from following exactly a method. Whatever whatever it is we're kind of dabbling in, we hope and pray that it works out. But I think that part of being a human is learning by mistakes. I We listened to a podcast, How I Built This, maybe it was Sarah Blakely, I can't remember who. Her dad, every night at the dinner table, asked, how did you fail today? Because that was a given in life that there'd be some failure. And he wanted his children to understand that. And I think that as homeschool moms, we have to sort of embrace that there's going to be some failure and recognize that that is just part of the learning process. It's good for us and our kids. Oh, I love that. And also just cozying up to that. I think that's a beautiful way to live. Well, thank you so much for joining today, Erin. I've loved this opportunity to talk with you about developing confidence as a homeschool mom. And I know that the Wild and Free community is going to learn so much as well. Uh, thank you so much for having me. This is so, so, so fun. Thanks, Erin. Friends, I hope you enjoyed this week's conversation. If you have a chance, please leave a review in iTunes so others can find our community and find freedom for their homeschools too. Well, that's all the time we have for today, but join us again next week for the Wild and Free Podcast.